0: Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin?
1: All engines are started.
0: That
2: looks really good.
1: So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh,
3: That's wow, really it's good. going up so slowly.
1: The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event?
0: Yes, I'm all set here. Yeah. Welcome to the fifth anniversary edition of Space Buffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I think you can sense the excitement in the <laughs> studio. L- listen to that.
3: Woo, woo! Come on. <laughs> oh, OK. We're joining in for just you, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, in a bumper special, we'll be talking about NASA's Juno mission to Jupiter and hearing from New Horizons mission scientists about the latest discoveries on Pluto. I'll also be taking a tour of the giant swimming pool we used to train European astronauts. And we welcome Tim Peake back to Earth, where Brexit casts a shadow over Britain's future involvement in European space project.
0: Our are uh, astronomer Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society and space journalist and TV presenter Sarah Crudders. Welcome both to our birthday edition. Oh,
4: is it birthday edition? It is our birthday. Yeah,
0: five, birthday. Years. birthday. five years. We've been
4: going five years. Birthday. I can't
0: believe they said it wouldn't last.
4: <laughs> Should have bought some cake. Mm, that <laughs> would
5: have been good. I'd uh, sing but I think your listeners <laughs> will uh, uh,
0: um, <laughs> Let's start 542 million miles away and this is the sound recorded on board NASA's Juno spacecraft as it enters Jupiter's magnetic field. weird and a little scary um, that's the bow shock and um, that was actually recorded on the 24th of June I think um, what's the bow shock
5: Robert? Well what you're hearing is where the spacecraft enters the, the powerful magnetic field that surrounds Jupiter so unlike the Earth it doesn't, at least we don't think it has a sort of molten iron core that generates that but it has this weird layer of what's described as liquid metallic hydrogen so if you imagine taking hydrogen which you would think of as a gas that just floats off compressing it to an enormous pressure then it behaves like a metal and moving around and so, on. when you get electrical charges moving around, you generate a magnetic field. And if you saw recently the pictures of the northern lights on jupiter that magnetic field is responsible for those as well that bit, and the interaction between the planet and the sun so that's what you're hearing is it's entering that it's environment great. it's a harsh place it's for very spacecraft forbidden
4: planet really like it sounds like something out of science fiction it but did didn't it you know, yeah. science fiction is science prediction really so it's it's kind of like a movie thing with, with i was very
3: excited when i first heard that i played it on my computer and i just went wow and i immediately played it again i the real Brilliant. sound from the solar yeah, system. Well, yeah.
0: on the 4th of July, the spacecraft went into orbit around the gas giant. <laughs> All
1: stations on June accord, we have the tone
3: for burn cutoff on Delta B. Graduce Juno, welcome to Jupiter. The Juno control room at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Now, this is quite an achievement, isn't it, folks, to, to get round Jupiter?
5: Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, every time you send a mission to space, there's so many things that can go wrong along the way. You know, it could fail at launch. That happens every so often. Uh, it, you know, something can go wrong with the antenna, as happened with the Galileo probe, the, the pre- precursor to this way back in the 1990s. Or the burn in the crucial phase can go wrong, and that probe could have just drifted on off into space and never done what it was supposed to do. So it's understandable. If you've spent maybe 10, 15 years working on this, you want it to work. I mean, imagine if you were in that lab watching that and thinking you know oh god this is what i've been working for this is all the data i expect to get over the next year and it doesn't work and it overshoots <laughs> yeah. exactly so mm. so you can see why they're ecstatic because they know they've they're getting the science data back they start to do the stuff they've been waiting for
3: it's been described hasn't it sarah as a planet on steroids i mean it's not just the getting there the getting into orbit it's the environment. Yeah I
4: mean this this mission uh, you know was 15 years in the making it took five years to get to Jupiter and I like to think of Jupiter as its own mini solar system within our solar systems you've got a small asteroid um, a small um, belt around it rings around it you've got all these incredible worlds these incredible moons that we're only starting to learn about and then this really harsh windy gases environment and we're you know we just Have this assumption that, you know, to the layperson that we've explored all the outer planets, we know our solar system because we've got pictures of them. And actually, this is the first time we're actually going to send a spacecraft into polar orbit around Jupiter. I mean, we're going to be cruising around uh, 3,900 kilometers above the cloud tops of Jupiter, which is the closest any spacecraft has come to the gas giant before. And Jupiter is fascinating to scientists because they think it was the first planet to actually form in our solar system. So, by learning more about how Jupiter formed, and as always happens with science, the theories we have have will probably end up being wrong and we'll have to come up with a new theory it's going to help us understand more about the solar system itself so it's that another step in the jigsaw puzzle to finding more about our own solar system and and the ultimate question why are we here why are planets here why does stuff exist i mean it's really mind-boggling incredible stuff
3: and it's got a british engine
5: it has, that's right. I mean, the, you know, that would have been, frankly, a national embarrassment at <laughs> half had that not worked. So, <laughs> had, enough, had, had enough of those recently. <laughs> exactly, yes. I'm very, very pleased it did. No, it does say, we, look, we do have, at least at the moment, a vibrant space sector. There's lots of small companies doing exactly this kind of thing, and that really is something to celebrate. You know, again, it's like, obviously, Tim Peake is the name on everybody's list, but let's not forget, you know, if you want to go into a career in the space sector, you could be working in engineering as well. Imagine being the person that designed the engine that put a probe into orbit around Jupiter. I think that'd be a pretty cool achievement.
0: What what Robert is the allure of Jupiter itself for you? I mean, never mind the moons, but the, the actual the planet.
5: Yeah, I mean, it, it's um apart from being a solar system, it's all uh, right. Sarah rightly said it, it's it's. Uh... I think the the fact that it's so easy to see, you know, you can take a small telescope Galileo did that four centuries ago and understood very quickly that it was a center other than the sun that it was it was big, it had a strong gravitational field and so on. So that on its own, you know, the big planet that dominates the solar system is, you know, of great interest, but there's also the fact that if we compare it with say planetary systems around other stars, Jupiter seems to be in an anomalous place because we look at those other stars and all the Once we've studied so far, there may be some kind of selection effect going on just down to the way we're looking at things. But they all appear to have big planets, but they're often very, very close in. They go around their star in maybe just a few days. Jupiter goes around in 12 years, and that's probably a good thing for us. It helps do things like uh, clear out some of the debris in the outer solar system that might otherwise head our way. But even setting aside that kind of role, it's, uh, you know, it's big, it's a sort of, you know, big punchy planet sitting there, loads of details, gigantic storms like the Red Spot. I mean, imagine a storm that's been going for 400 years as well. And all of those features that, you know, you only get a close look at them when you send a mission like this.
3: It puts a British summer into perspective, doesn't it? The non- <laughs> non-stop rain. <laughs> also, I was quite interested to read that the spacecraft itself, because of the very harsh planetary environment that the instruments are surrounded by, titanium in order to protect them. So, the the spacecraft itself is going to have to get its do its science sort of down and dirty and fast because of the the battering it's going to take from being in orbit.
4: Yeah, it's, it's almost like an armored tank. You can think of as well and one thing I love about this spacecraft is this is the furthest we've sent a solar powered spacecraft so it's got three uh, big solar panels about the size of a tractor trailer on it and it's just great as in terms of the feat of science and engineering because I think often people assume it's a feat of science but actually it's the engineers you know the scientists come up with the ideas but it's the engineers who make them possible so the engineers have been able to design this spacecraft uh, um, and it's not going to live a long time around Jupiter and it will come to obviously quite a sad and when it eventually crashes into the gas giant
0: are you not a little bit disappointed that you know 2001 a space odyssey had this <laughs> yeah. you know what giant manned spacecraft with this uh, artificial gravity this psychopathic computer on board and 2016 <laughs> we've got this you know tiny little solar powered uh, spacecraft with three lego figures on board.
5: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess. It, look, it's a harsh radiation environment. You know, perhaps when Arthur C. Clyde was writing that novel, he wasn't quite as aware of that. But you don't go into an environment where you've got the radiation levels a 100 times the lethal dose, where you need really thick radiation shielding even to just survive. So although it would be nice to think of us exploring that bit of the solar system, I think there's, there's very little prospect that people will ever go where this probe is going. It's like going close to the sun. You know, you can send a shielded probe to it. You probably really don't want people to do that. So... Yes and no. I mean, of course it would be fantastic, wouldn't it, if we had asteroids floating around the rings of Jupiter or walking around the surface of Europa? But that, that's, A, a long time off. And, B, it's not quite up there with, you know, your kind of comfortable holiday destinations.
4: But I I would argue that, you know, you could say, oh, yes, it's disappointing because all the science fiction things haven't come true. But we live in a world transformed by space. And actually going up into space is all about improving life here on Earth. And you forget that's probably the most significant thing of the space age. So, yes, we haven't got all the things we want. We haven't been to Mars yet. You know, all the science fiction things haven't seen to come true. But the world we live in is being transformed by the space age. You know, private space is now a huge rising industry and we're going to see huge steps uh, in terms of commercial space exploration. So I wouldn't say disappointed. I think we just got the timing wrong with a few things. Uh, and actually, we have got this space world at the moment. Yeah,
0: yeah sure. Sh- Buzzkill. with the Lego figures putting things in perspective
6: (laughs) I'd,
4: I'd just like to say with the Lego figures what I love about them so you've got Jupiter obviously the name of the planet his wife Juno and then Galileo and Galileo was the first person to point a telescope at Jupiter and isn't it great that that Lego figure is going to be seeing up close, with something which Galileo saw with the telescope hundreds of years ago. So I think that's quite a symbolic thing, and I love all the symbolic um, things they always have with these missions. So, for example, with New Horizons, you had part of Spaceship One um, and also uh, part of Clyde Tomberg's Ashes were on that mission. So I love the... Um, symbolism because it shows that art and science can go hand in hand.
3: Well you're right, it has been an incredible time for space exploration because at the one end of the solar system we've got the Rosetta probe which is still in orbit around the comet and at the other end, as you mentioned, New Horizons which has revealed the extraordinary world of Pluto. Now scientists from around the world uh, were meeting at the Open University recently in Milton Keynes to discuss the latest results from Rosetta and I got talking to Joel Parker from the Southwest Research Institute in the United States. Now he's the deputy principal investigator on Rosetta's ALICE instrument which is a an ultraviolet spectrometer but he's also the project manager and member of the science team for New Horizons ALICE instrument as well. So I'll begin by asking him how the same instrument can be used for two very different missions.
1: In the ultraviolet, there are lots of interesting signatures of different chemicals that are useful for comets as well as for Pluto. We look at the gas around the comet for Rosetta. Uh, We look at oxygen and hydrogen and and molecules there. For New Horizons, we are also looking at the atmosphere around Pluto. Pluto has an atmosphere and it has a very interesting atmosphere. Not only do we look at the atmosphere but we even look back at the sun and let the sunlight come through the atmosphere. It's like watching the sun set behind Pluto and using that we can see a lot about what's in the atmosphere.
3: And what have you found in Pluto's atmosphere?
1: Well we found some of what we expected. We knew that uh, there would be methane and nitrogen although the atmosphere is a little more compact than we expected there's some cooling going on we're not exactly sure what is cooling the atmosphere so that's good it gives us a mystery we all like good mysteries so that's something we're still working out and that's just from the alice instrument of course there are many other instruments on new horizons as well
3: it's amazing i find it quite incredible just the fact that we're talking about Pluto's atmosphere (laughs) because until relatively recently it was a considered a sort of dead planet on the far outer reaches of our solar system out in the
1: cold stretches actually
3: then of course it was demoted to a demi-planet or dwarf (laughs) planet and yet now with the recent discoveries we're seeing images in detail that we never thought possible this feels like It is a new world, a new part of our solar system. That's
1: exactly what I say, too. Even if you don't define Pluto as a planet, it is definitely a world. There is so much surprising about Pluto that we didn't expect with nitrogen glaciers over frozen ice bedrock. I mean, who could have thought of that beforehand? And the different types of mountains and terrain and how they're made and... Very, very young surfaces. This was another big surprise at Pluto. We thought out on the edges of the solar system, it's cold, it's dead, nothing going on. But what we see is the nitrogen glaciers, for example, are incredibly young. Now, how do we know that? Well, things out in the solar system get pummeled by other things, and they leave craters. So the longer they're out there... The more craters they have, because things hit them, unless the surface changes. And that's what we mean by a young surface, a surface that has undergone changes. And if you see no craters on the surface, like we do in what's called Sputnik Plenum on Pluto, this nitrogen glacier area, if you see no craters, you know that that's a very young surface, meaning it's been replenished in some way. Big surprise. We're still scratching our heads trying to figure out how that works.
3: Do you think maybe Pluto should be promoted again?
1: Pluto doesn't really care what we call it. <laughs> I personally still think of it as a planet. In fact, I give it dual citizenship. It was the last planet discovered and the first Kuiper belt ever discovered. Pluto was an indicator of something new, the third zone of the solar system that we didn't know existed. It was giving us a hint, and we just couldn't figure it out for the longest time. Also, the definition they use for a planet doesn't quite work. If you take something that you call a planet in one circumstance, but you move it to another part of the solar system or away from the sun, it is or isn't a planet, depending on where it is, that gets to be a little bit vague. I don't think it's a good definition, although... Do you need a definition of a planet? (laughs) Uh, It's useful to talk about. In some ways, you could say the solar system has dozens of planets. If you talk about worlds, objects that are big enough to have made themselves into a sphere because of their own gravity, you have Ceres, the asteroid, you have many of these other Kuiper Belt objects that are comparable in size to Pluto. How exciting is it that you now have a solar system that's gone from nine to 20 to dozens of planets? To me, that's as exciting as anything else.
3: New Horizons, Joel Parker. And by the way, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. fans will love the fact that one of Pluto's four newly discovered moons is called Hydra. Apparently it has a classical reference, but we all know what's going down. I haven't
4: seen the film. I'm not, not. sure.
3: <laughs> oh, it's a series, it's everything. I, could
4: you not argue, though, that um, Pluto is more of a planet than Jupiter? You, you know, if we're going to get on the semantics of planets, and, and then, the, you know, is a brown dwarf, is it a star mm. or a planet? I yeah. think that's, as humans we almost like to categorise things, and maybe we can't do that. I as like much the fact that he said s- it
3: was dual citizenship.
5: Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is difficult, because Pluto has some characteristic of the star, you're right. I mean, it emits heat and so on, so... Yeah, if you were seeing that round another star, you know, you'd probably think, "Well, is this? It's, it's on the boundary." You're absolutely right. I mean, I think I think it was very clear when you think, "Well, a planet." People think something you can walk around, but obviously that only applies to the inner solar system, yeah. where well, you could walk on Pluto, but. Yeah, it, it's a fuzzy Ice definition. Pluto, you, you could... Yeah, that's, a, that's another good question. The, the With which enough are really gravity? I'm not sure you could, could you? No, it's... You like, have you, strap you yourself the skate, down. Yeah. Yeah, the skate has to melt the surface underneath, doesn't it? So then that's not going to happen. No. Okay. no um, hundreds could, of years, we'll find the yeah. answer out. <laughs> yeah, anyway... I'm, I'm being killed, John. I apologise.
0: I also bumped into a uh, Pluto scientist recently while at Space Fest in Arizona last month. Planetary astronomer Leslie Young is also from the Southwest Research Institute, and she began by telling me what they have learnt about Pluto's largest moon Charon.
2: If you first think of uh, the big moon uh, Charon or Charon you can pronounce it either way we're seeing smooth plains on the southern half which might have been uh, the result of uh, early volcanic water flows. Uh, We're seeing stretch marks extensional features that show that Charon had a water ocean that froze and uh, because uh, water expands when it freezes it stretches out the crust. Uh, We see a dark cap on Charon which uh, might be atmosphere from Pluto that escapes and it sticks to the cold poles of of Charon.
0: She says Charon, I say Charon. (laughs) 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 Uh, We
2: moved on to Pluto itself and uh, what the planet is actually like inside. We know that's density, so we think that the interior is mainly rock, like silicates, and then that there's a mantle of water ice, and on top of the water ice is the volatiles, frozen nitrogen, methane, and uh, carbon monoxide. We can see some of the water peeking through in different places. We were hoping to see the water, expecting to see it because we see it on Triton, which is a moon of Neptune that's similar to Pluto. We've looked for decades and never seen it from the Earth, but when we got the high spatial resolution with New Horizons, we were able to see the water. Also, there's what we call photochemical products. When UV hits things, it can destroy it. You know, you get sunburns, uh, you peel your paint. When UV hits Pluto, it breaks the methane down and it recombines into longer, darker Tar-like substance, and we see that there as well.
0: How much sunlight, though, is actually reaching Pluto? Because uh, uh, the images, I imagine, are slightly misleading. In that, the, it must be really black out there, mustn't it?
2: It's not so black at Pluto. If you um, Google Pluto time, it will tell. And you put in your Latin long, it will tell you. Um, when right after sunset you should go out it'll say 7:35 35 today uh, it'll be as bright for you right after sunset as it is at noon on pluto so the sunlight is about a thousand times dimmer than it is here but it's um you could read a book at pluto
0: oh i didn't realize that i thought it was going to be very dark you, th- you imagine i'm just thinking of all the, the kids diagrams you think well Pluto is an awful long way away
2: Pluto is an awful long way away. New Horizons was the fastest thing ever to leave the Earth. We passed by the orbit of the Moon in only uh, nine hours, but um, it took us nine and a half years to get to Pluto.
0: What are you continuing to learn? Because, I mean, the mission has gone past now. You're not in orbit. Can you still, are you still getting data, or have you still got a lot of data to get through?
2: <laughs> oh, we just got three beautiful new images down last night. There'll be lots of hot and heavy Pluto stuff for the next year or two, I think. And then it'll continue for decades and decades. People are still learning stuff about the Voyager flybys. And would you like to visit? I mean, it looks fabulous. I feel like I'm visiting. It just makes my heart sing when we get down a new image.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie Young, a scientist on the New Horizons mission to Pluto. So, uh, Robert, what next for New Horizons?
5: Well, it's got another destination. When it was launched, they originally had this idea in mind. The, uh, one of the names for a mission that wasn't quite this one was Pluto Kuiper Express, and this has the same goal. So, it'll heading on from Pluto it's going to an object in the Kuiper Belt that you heard in the, in the pieces this zone of icy bodies right at the edge of the solar system it goes by the exciting name of 2014 MU69 it's only a, it's only a few tens of kilometres across but we have absolutely never sent a probe to that part of the solar system before it's the one and only chance to getting an image of it you know it'll be a long long time before anything goes out there again so this is so far out, it's much smaller than Pluto. It's very unlikely, well it could be wrong, to have those same kind of geological processes going on. So it will be quite pristine, and that in itself is, is a nice thing to go and sample. You know, going out, understanding how the solar system formed, you go out and you look at these objects that haven't changed for, for many billions of years.
0: Well, still to come on Space Boffins, Sue visits a giant swimming pool, and we welcome home Tim Peake to an uncertain future. This is the award-winning fifth birthday edition of the Space (laughs) Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists.
3: You can reach Space Boffins on Facebook and Twitter. Next month, we're off to the Blue Dot Festival at Jodrell Bank in Cheshire, where we'll be presenting the podcast uh, from a tent, probably, in a muddy (laughs) field. So if you recognise us... Do come and say hello. Uh,
0: We've also got a couple of radio programmes coming up. I'll be reporting on the challenges of building starships for BBC Radio 4 in caravans in space. Uh, That goes out on the 27th of July. Don't ask about the title. And Sue's recently spent a week with a remarkable woman um, who should have been one of America's first astronauts.
3: Yeah, this is uh, Wally Funk, uh, one of the Mercury 13, a group of women who were secretly tested as astronauts in the 1960s. We've had her on the podcast before, but um, this is a lovely documentary, and this is what happened when we went shopping in Houston.
4: Well, right now, we're at the Space Centre bookstore, and my goodness, all the books they have, The Man on the Moon, The First Man, oh, we have one, The Last Man on the Moon... Rocket men. What about the women? I don't see any. There's no books here on the Mercury 13. Isn't that interesting? It's all about
3: the guys. (laughs) Wonderful Wally Funk. And Women With The Right Stuff goes out on BBC World Service on July the 16th. And and both our programs for the BBC will also be podcasts. So we'll put details of them on Facebook and Twitter.
1: The is home. Touchdown confirmed at uh, 4.15 a.m. Central Time, 3.15 p.m. at the landing site in Kazakhstan. Tim Kopra, Tim Peake, and Yuri Malenchenko are back on Earth after 186 days in space. The same number of days aboard the International Space Station, the Soyuz has landed. British European
3: Space Agency astronaut Tim Peake back on Earth, and what an incredible six months! Sarah, what would you give him out of ten for mission achievements on this one?
4: Eleven. I know you (laughs) technically can't have you know um, eleven out of ten, but it's just been. It's been great and it's also been great for Helen Sharman because I think a lot of people were unaware of Helen Sharman but this year was her 25th anniversary since her flight um, to space so it's been great for Tim Peake, it's been great for inspiring young people obviously all the science which went on and Helen's story and then just saying to people, do you know what, in the UK we do have a space industry it's no longer about NASA or ESA or America you can be born in England and you can grow up and you can work in the space industry and that industry is growing and you can make a difference so I think Tim Peake is just the tip of an iceberg for what has been in incredible six months and all the time leading up and then all the time after that as well because of course tim has now got his eyes on walking on the moon um you know the european space agency are looking at a lunar village yes it might sound like science fiction we hear often we're going back to the moon or to mars but you know in 1962 it didn't seem like any human would walk on the surface of the moon and we managed it so it would be incredible to follow tim's journey further into the future
0: walk on the moon could that happen robert
5: Well, could it happen? Of course it could, because we've done it already. Um, The Moon Village thing, that could happen too. You'd need big political commitment, a lot of agencies working together to achieve that. And actually, probably, if you're going to do it, you need to think about what it's for to make it. Because, you know, the thing about the Apollo flights was they were, let's go there and we, we say we've done it. And there was never really a plan to continue that. Whereas if you did have something like a genuine settlement or a genuine base, then you could say, well, this is the scientific justification for it. This is the things we plan to do. In there. Then I think it's got more prospect of becoming a reality. It would help a lot, I have to say, if we could just do these things a bit more cheaply and a bit more easily. You know, it's always about the amount of fuel and the, the size of the rockets you need, all of those things. If you could, if you know, that's what I think the next paradigm shift in exploration needs to be, that we somehow find a way of doing these things. That's slightly bit easier, and then it becomes a bit more routine. Because even going into orbit is still a pretty big deal. You know, let's face it, only a few hundred people have ever done that across the whole world. So it's not, although although it sometimes seems like it, it's not actually quite as routine as you think. And it's still risky, of course, as well. So we need to get, I think we need to get to that point. But it would be great. I mean, it would be nice to see Europe leading the way on that.
0: Now... We've mentioned politics, we've talked about Tim Peake on the Moon, Moon Village. In theory, Britain leaving the European Union, which will happen probably, that shouldn't affect Britain's relationship with the European Space Agency. It's still an active member of the European Space Agency, at least in theory. But the the, the practice, do you suspect that might be different?
5: Well... It's really uncertain. If you talk to people in the industry at the moment, the main thing they're worried about is that there's no certainty over the relationship we'll have and how it all pans out. And it's certainly exercising the scientific community in a big way. Something like 93% of polled scientists said they wanted to stay in the EU. Now... The reason it could affect the relationship is ESA is partly because ESA gets about 20% of its funding from the European Union for the Copernicus program and the Galileo program. So and
0: they, The UK's put a lot of money the, into The UK's those.
5: already invested heavily in those, so we'd like to see the return from that. And then there's also the issue that we, a lot of people will say, well, it re, you refer to, I don't know, Norway and Switzerland as members of ESA, and that's quite true. But then both Norway and Switzerland have effectively signed up to a lot of the EU treaties, so you can, for example, still move and work fairly easily in those countries. Now, my worry would be that if, for example we made it really tough for people to come into the UK and then you know the reciprocal arrangement would doubtless be it would be harder for us to go and work in the rest of Europe that a lot of ESA jobs would become that much harder to acquire you know if you have an ESA office here as we do in Harwell and it's and you need to suddenly start getting work permits for uh, scientists from Germany and France then I might you know a lot of companies will look at that as well and say well do we really want to be here so all of these are big issues and it, it's not directly affecting it, but I find it very hard to believe they won't have to do some serious thinking about this, about how this is going to work, and my hope is that the negotiators take all this stuff on board. You know, I mean, frankly, they talk about needing a thousand negotiators to negotiate <laughs> you know, and that's a minimum. You know, the amount of advice that's going to be needed on all of this, it's, it's a huge task.
0: What about this as an opportunity for Britain to think, well, have its own space programme, more like the Germans do or the French do, where they have quite a lot of money going into their, their own particular space workers, or partnering with NASA a little bit more, or the the Chinese or the Russians, because we're sort of uniquely positioned to do that.
5: Yeah, I mean, there's been nothing stopping us from doing that already, you know um, there's no, nothing in ESA membership that says you can't go off and strike up other relationships, so that, that's not been a major issue up to now, but it is you know, I'd like to say, I hope this doesn't go the way of the sort of famous £350 million a week that suddenly wasn't going to be saved after all you know, th- there's no reason in the sense you can't pursue that, and perhaps not being in the EU allows that more easily, but you know, I'm not actually sure being in the EU was a barrier to it already. So, you know, yes, you're right, there is sort of an opportunity if we do, say, sign trading agreements with China and so on on our own right, that we could pursue that kind of thing. I think that's quite a long way down the line, though. The main thing we want to see is to make sure that the scientists, the engineers, can still work easily in the UK and the rest of Europe and that we don't start making that more difficult. Because if we do then, you know, why, if you were a young person looking to enter this industry, would you stay in the UK if you suddenly think, well, mm. I'm cut off on the rest of you? You know, you need to feel that you're and, part and of the global is all community. And this science, and, you and particularly space
3: least. science, it's all about international collaboration. Yeah. No matter whatever yeah. meeting I've been to, science meeting for missions, particularly Rosetta, no matter which part of the world I've gone to a meeting, it, it it's it's amazing.
4: Well, take Juno, for example, that was a NASA mission, but, you know, as we were talking about earlier, the engine, that was a British engine. I mean, space is about collaboration, and it, it You know, it is uncertain times with Brexit. I I think it's too soon to tell, but the only thing that is certain is uncertainty across the industries at the moment.
3: It's like, please stop, please stop. Well, one of the highlights of Tim's stay on the space station was his spacewalk. The British astronaut spent just under five hours on his EVA, or extravehicular, I can never say that, vehicular, (laughs) activity, repairing an electrical junction box and no doubt savouring that amazing view. Not every astronaut, though, gets to do a spacewalk as it's an extremely arduous task and it requires an awful lot of training. But ESA astronauts have an advantage. They're given familiarisation and proficiency training at the Astronaut Training Centre in Cologne in Germany, where there's a huge swimming pool as part of the Neutral Buoyancy Facility. Well, I met up with the head of the facilities operations EVA training unit, Hervé Stenening.
7: Let's go into the natural buoyancy facility which is this big water tank.
3: Wow and it's warm isn't it? It feels like um, a rainforest actually. Yeah
7: yeah, it's because we have to maintain the water temperature at 29 degrees uh, celsius to make sure that uh, the the astronauts are comfortable through the long EVA training they get underwater.
3: Now this pool I mean it looks like something you would actually want on your holidays because not only does the temperature feel lovely and warm the water is beautiful and blue and you want to dive in but if i was to dive in i'd hit my head on one of several big hunks of metal here yeah. that uh, look quite familiar um to anybody who knows uh, the space station
7: yeah actually we have emerged uh, some modules which are full-scale representation of, of uh, modules for of uh, international space station uh, so we have the columbus module uh, on which uh, our astronauts are training on translating and going to work sites and, and doing some EV activities. We have also an, an airlock, which is actually the compartment where the astronauts have to, have to depressurize and to, to open the hatch to get out in space. And we have here another structure that we call the jungle gym. Actually, it's uh, a <laughs> structure um, with uh, complex translation passes and, and uh, uh, requiring that you rotate your body and do some specific movements. And uh, you can work also in a confined environment. And it's a bit similar to the big truss of the space station where the solar arrays are attached to.
3: So when an astronaut does their pre-familiarization training here, they're not wearing a full suit, but they're wearing something that, to the untrained eye, yeah. looks pretty similar.
7: Exactly. So uh, ESA has not developed any spacesuit for spacewalk so far. It might come in the future, but not yet and all this, uh, the EVAs are done on the space station with uh, the US spacesuit or the Russian spacesuit. Our astronauts, when they go outside on EVA, they go mainly with the US spacesuit, the EMU suit. So here we simulate uh, we, uh, the, the, the configuration uh, so that an astronaut is um, a bit like uh, feeling and getting the same touch capabilities and, and, and operation capabilities as he would be in the, in the suit. So they wear thermal cover, the outside cover of the of the real EMU suit, the gloves like on, on the spacesuit. Because they are not inflated, we put an additional layer below with some uh, stiffness, just to create the same lack of dexterity that you can have when the gloves are inflated.
3: And is the weight on their backs? Is everything else the yeah, boots? Yeah, the, the boots. Similar? You have the
7: boots. You have all the 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 mini where all the tools are attached to. The same tethers. The the mask with a limited visibility and also communication capability between the two astronauts underwater and their instructors in the control room. We create a kind of look and feel the same like there would be in the space suit.
6: Looking
3: at the Columbus module down on the bottom of the pool here, if you're giving them an assignment,
7: what would you do? Well, typically what we train here, because it's EVA pre-familiarization, so we train them on typical tasks, like... What do you do on a, on a spacewalk? You have to go outside to carry equipment and to install the equipment somewhere. You have to retrieve some equipment from outside, maybe to bring it back to the station to repair them or to exchange them. You have to transport an equipment from one location to another location. You have to get some tools somewhere that you might have to use during your EVAs. And you have to translate to the different work sites And you have to do connections with, with cables, cable handling, uh, uh, electrical and fluid connections. So it's a kind of plumbery, electricity, transport and 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 support uh, activity that the astronauts are doing so we do exactly the same we tell them okay you go to outside of the airlock you have to install on this work site, this uh, payload or uh, orbital replacement unit you need your tools that you have to get them out out of there and they have to do the full choreography and to develop that
3: and how long will they spend underwater
7: around three hours and a half maximum because we have a small space station i would say uh, underwater uh real EVA training is uh, minimum six hours when they are in the in the in the spacesuit. Tim Peake yeah. did some yeah. of
3: his training here and he did a great yeah. spacewalk yeah. during his stay. When you've had astronauts come back from the space station, what's the feedback like?
7: They realize and, and through their training that this pre training is extremely valuable. We train them here on the, the does and don'ts to the rules of engagement of a spacewalk. What they have to do? All uh, they have to communicate, or they have to be aware to be safe and efficient. And when they go to Houston, they are ahead of their astronaut colleagues at NASA, who have, they don't get this uh, similar training, and they get extremely good evaluations and good marks from the from the instructors in Houston. They feel that it's much easier than expected. They know oh, oh, any, any, everything that they have to do. They just have to adapt to the bulkiness of the spacesuit, and they keep this boost that we give them as an advance to the others, and then they have they are so good and getting so great uh, marking at the end that they are assigned to an EVA.
3: Because not everyone gets no, to do no, it, do they? No, no, You it, can fail.
7: You can fail. Uh, I would say the, the astronauts, most of them, they would like to, to get an EVA in space because it's the ultimate experience ultimate experience that you can get there. But it's a very difficult training. This is the most challenging activity and, 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 and most complex that an astronaut can do in space. And some of the guys, they fail. They don't go through it. Or even they say, that's not for me. Our astronauts are boosted, they are motivated, they get good marks, they are performed excellent. And then they are assigned to an EVA. Team Peak was assigned. I mean, Luca Parmitano was assigned. I mean, we had also Alexander Guest, uh, we'll have Thomas Pesquet uh, next year. The results are, are fantastic for, for the European Space Agency, for the guys that we recruited in 2009. And then, of course, when they are in space, I mean, they, they realize... Or beneficial this this training is
3: it does look great but like you say it must be very um physically yep. demanding
7: but it's also very demanding mentally i mean the first time you are in a spacesuit like that and you start to work you feel like a baby who tried to assemble cubes doesn't match you, you, your your movement you have to learn your, your brain has to learn again all these new movement rules your visibility is reduced and actually what is, what is very challenging is that you are in the suit, dexterity re- reduced, uh, movement limitation is reduced also. Vis- the visibility, all your senses, let's say their capability are downgraded and very limited, but you are asked to develop a, a higher awareness of your environment compared to what you have normally on Earth. This kind of challenge uh, requires a lot of training and a lot of uh, adaptation to, to, to these conditions.
3: Is it all right if I just? Yeah, you can. You can have it. a look at the temperature. Yeah. Have a little. Oh yeah, That's, It's not cold. No. It's not too warm, but it's it's definitely.
7: Yeah. Good enough to to swim in. Yeah, it's 29 degrees yeah. Celsius. That's lovely. It um, cannot go below, uh, otherwise uh, you can get cold. Yeah.
3: And the Russians don't have a pre-familiarization have no. either, and neither does, yeah. does NASA.
7: It's hmm? a greater set for Europe.
3: Head of ESA Spacewalk Training Unit, Hervé Stennening at the agency's Neutral Buoyancy Facility. Well, thank you very much to our guests, Robert Massey and Sarah Crudders. Thank you. For joining us Pleasure. on our fifth anniversary special podcast. Happy birthday. Thank
2: exactly. you. Thank
0: you very much.
5: Still didn't sing.
0: <laughs> no yeah. please don't sing um, well you, you might be brilliant no, we'll, ne- no, we'll, no, we'll no. never know no, no. Um, Space well, Boffins is a boffin media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists, supported by the Royal Astronomical Society and the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. You can listen again to every Space Boffins podcast on the Naked Scientists website and iTunes and that's where you'll find the early ones if you were with us from the beginning and if you were thank you very much. Our guests on the first podcast incidentally imagine the Titled Podcast One I can't believe I called it (laughs) Podcast One Uh, With David Parker, Head of Science At the UK Space Agency, later to be the Head of the Space Agency and is now Tim Peake's boss at the European Space Agency and uh, BBC Science correspondent Jonathan Amos Still BBC Science correspondent.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, July 2011, when we started, that was actually an historic month for spaceflight. It was with the launch of the final space shuttle Atlantis. And a few months before, Discovery had launched for the final time. And our first podcast featured Space Boffin's fan and regular Kate Arkless-Gray, Space Kate, who witnessed the Discovery's launch. So we're going to end with a bit of space shuttle nostalgia. So thank you for listening and do join us again. Next month, oh,
6: my oh, my she was our shuttle, Diva Discovery. You know, would she go? And we all were hoping and wishing, and, and everything looked great. It was just the most amazing thing. We were just screaming and shouting as she started to go, and then, of course, you're three miles away, so it takes longer for the sound to hit you. So we were all cheering and then you can just hear it kind of dying down slightly So this very low rumble starts coming across the water at you and it just it gets louder and louder and it's like thousands of fireworks going off at once. It's like the sound is ripping through the air. You know, if you listen to the recordings, you might think that the microphone um, was having some problems because it was so noisy. No, it actually sounds like that, that crazy kind of popping Yeah, it's like a mad noise you can't describe. But it wasn't just the noise; it was the feel of it. You feel the thrust of those engines and those rocket boosters. You can feel it in your chest. You know, everything was vibrating. Everything shook, and we just went silent. Everyone just kind of was in their own little place. Wow. And then, you know, as the the sound starts to die away again, we all cheered, and I I just can't explain it.